All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right. Glad that y'all are here. Um, if I have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Alan Pittman, and I serve as senior pastor and one of our elders here at Living Hope, and we are thrilled that you're with us today. Hopefully when you came in, you picked up a uh, worship guide and also a connection. Well, you wouldn't have picked that up. Sorry. Hopefully when you came in, you picked up a worship guide. If you're a guest, though, we would love for you to fill out this connection card. There should be one somewhere in the row near you. Uh, you can fill that out and the offering plate will be passed a little bit later. You can drop it in there. But on the back of your worship guide, there's a place where you can take notes as we move through this morning's uh, message. Before I get to the message, though, I do want to highlight a couple of things. One that we weren't able to get on the announcement, so this is something that has not been announced, so you'll want to be sure and listen up. I mentioned uh, the Aggie BSM uh, here in town. We partner with them, and one of the ways that the Aggie BSM uh, does ministry is they work with international students. And so when international students move here, uh, they aren't able to really bring their household goods with them as they fly on an airplane. And so uh, because of that, they have a, an event that they call the uh, Great Giveaway, and they encourage churches to partner alongside of them by providing gently used uh, house furniture and things like that, and then also some welcome kits that might be gift cards to various places. And so in order for you to know all the information you need to know, I need to encourage you to go to our website, lhbc.net, go to the Hope, and at the bottom of the Hope, scroll all the way down at the bottom, you'll find information about the great giveaway. And the reason that you want to know about the great giveaway and the welcome home kits and check that out online is because the deadline to contribute to that is a week from tomorrow. So the deadline is August 7th. We apologize we didn't get you the information sooner. Hopefully we'll send out an email to our church family this week with details. But please go check that out. It's a worthwhile ministry uh, to be a part of. And then one other thing that I'm going to keep mentioning every week. Um, August the 27th is a Sunday. And you absolutely need to be here. Mark your calendar. Keep your calendar clear. Be here on August the 27th one of the most important Sundays that we'll have this year as a church family in the morning service. And then also we'll have a family celebration at five o'clock that evening. And uh, we are going to celebrate partially with uh, a potluck meal. And so uh, you'll be getting information about that as well. So potluck meal that Sunday evening at five o'clock, uh, August the 27th. Do not want to miss uh, August 27th in the service in the morning or in the evening as well. All right, let's go ahead and jump into our uh, message for today. You'll notice on the front side of the worship guide, we've jumped back into the book of Acts. Uh, you may not know it from the title, but it is back in the book of Acts. We're calling this uh, series To the Ends of the Earth. And for the last year or so, we've been walking through the book of Acts, taking a few breaks here and there. And so today, we're going to jump back into the book of Acts. And hopefully, you've got a Bible with you. If you do, go ahead and open that up to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 18 and 19. If you don't have a Bible, then you can grab one. There should be one under your chair, near you, around you. Use that Bible this morning while you're here in the room. And then if you need a Bible at the house or you know someone who does, feel free to take that with you. That'll be our gift uh, to you. Um, on the back of the, sermon, uh, back of the worship guide, there's a place where you can take notes as we move through the sermon this morning. Let's kind of think back about the book of Acts. The, the book of Acts is all about how the Holy Spirit, which we just looked at the Holy Spirit in this last series called Empowered, and, and the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit empowering followers of Jesus to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, the title that I chose for the sermon is faithfully making disciples of all people. Faithfully making disciples of all people. Here at our church, we talk a lot about being a disciple and making disciples. And the question is, what do we mean by that? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to make disciples? To make disciples, in a quick nutshell, is to help others know Jesus and then teaching them to obey Jesus. And so to know Jesus, a word we sometimes use is evangelism. And evangelism means to share the gospel good news of Jesus Christ so that someone who doesn't know Jesus personally can come to faith in him. And disciple making not only includes evangelism, it also involves discipling. Discipling is the process by which a person learns and knows and understands more about Jesus and obeys what he teaches. And so here's the deal. We must as a church family, share the gospel with others. 
And we as a church family must equip believers to replicate or reproduce other faithful followers of Jesus. In other words, it's not just being a disciple and making disciples, but rather it is being a disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who make disciples. It's our job to share the gospel so that others will come to faith and grow in their faith so that they in turn share it with others. And so again, this morning, we're starting this series called To the Ends of the Earth as we see Paul go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. And specifically in this text, we're going to see that we're to faithfully make disciples of all people. So if you don't mind, look with me at Acts chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 23, and then we're going to read through chapter 19, verse 10, all right? When it says he here, it's talking about Paul. It says, um, after spending some time there... He was in Antioch, his home, his sending church, much like what Kaylee was talking about. Paul had gone on a missionary journey, come back to Antioch, and he's spending time there. After spending some time there, Paul departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul is now on his third missionary journey. And then we have a little interlude in verse 24 that's not about Paul. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And then in verse chapter 19, we pick up the story of Paul again. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. That's John the Baptist. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's the way of Christ, Before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that's modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All right, so we're covering a lot of ground today. And the reason we're covering so much ground is because there's some common themes between the stories that take place here. And we see at the beginning of this uh, passage, in verse 23, we see Paul beginning his journey of his third missionary journey. When we read the book of, of Acts, we see in the second half of the book, there are three separate trips, if you will, that Paul goes on to share the gospel around the then known world. And, and in In the first one, the second one, he goes in various places. The third one is less about a trip and more about he kind of goes on his way to Ephesus and then he stays a long time in Ephesus. And so here we are in in Paul's missionary journey. And, And in this story that we read today, in addition to Paul, we see a few other characters. So to help us understand it a little bit better, let's look at some of these main characters. You may even want to jot down some notes to keep straight who is who and what they're doing. The first character that we see is Apollos. And Apollos is introduced to us in verse 24. And it's interesting about Apollos, he he has a great story and yet there's very little in scripture about him. And we're introduced to Apollos here, I don't know what that was other than a a computer dinging I guess, but anyway we're introduced to Apollos here in uh, chapter 18, and then after this portion, he is barely briefly mentioned in the book of Titus that Paul writes, and then he's mentioned a 
good bit in 1 Corinthians. And outside of that, we don't really have much record of what Apollos did. But in this text, we see that Apollos is from Alexandria. If you know much about Alexandria, Egypt, you'll know in this time period that Alexandria was a cultural as well as an educational center. In fact, they had the second largest library in the world at that time. And so it was a very studious kind of place. And we see that Apollos was an eloquent speaker. He was well-versed in the scripture. He understands it. We see all of that in Acts chapter 18. And then all of a sudden, we see two characters show up by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila are married, and we don't know a whole lot about them, but we do see that they're introduced to us in Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, early in the chapter, back in verse 2, we are introduced to uh, I'm sorry, Priscilla and Aquila. And we find out that Paul met them on his second missionary journey in the city of Corinth. And we find out that Apollo, uh, I, I keep mixing my names up, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. Well, Paul was a tent maker as well. And we find out that while Paul was on his second missionary journey, he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila. And so undoubtedly, Paul trained Priscilla and Aquila. And then we find out later in chapter 18 that in verses 8 and 9, that Paul took them to Ephesus, and then he left them in Ephesus. And so in the ending of chapter 18, when they show up and they talk to Apollos, they're in Ephesus talking to him. Now, I want to look at the geography real quick. We're going to look at the map, and I'm going to acknowledge this map looks really nice on a computer screen, and it's hard to see from a distance, all right? So I'm going to point some things out. Antioch is over here where it's Paul's sending church. That's where he came from. We see Galatia here. We see um, Phrygia in this area. He gets somehow from Antioch to Ephesus. So everything we're reading today, including in chapter 19, is in Ephesus. And you see here there's Achaia, there's Athens, and there's Corinth. So uh, we're going to see that Apollos ends up in Corinth, but the rest of what we're reading about happens there in Ephesus. So that's a little bit. Oh, and then, and then uh, this whole area says Asia Minor. This area is Asia, not the Asia we think of today. So whenever it says Asia, it's referencing that portion of the map. So uh, Paul, like I said, journeyed from uh, Antioch to, through Galatia and Phrygia. He ends up in uh, Ephesus. All of chapter 19 takes place there. And then Corinth, as I mentioned, is briefly mentioned whenever Apollos goes over there. All right, let's kind of look at the different scenes that takes place in this text. In 18, verse 23, Paul goes from town to town through Galatia and Phrygia. The reason he does that is because this is where he was on his previous missionary journey. And so he goes to those towns where he had been previously. And then we find, beginning in verse 24 that Apollos is preaching in the synagogue in Ephesus. And it's there that Priscilla and Aquila address a concern they have about Apollos. And then in 27 and 28, we find out that Apollos transitions to the city of Corinth. Then we have another shift of scenery, and that's in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Paul shows up in Ephesus, and he begins to preach to the 12 men that he sees there. And then it finishes in verses 8 through 10 with a description of Paul spending over two years of preaching and teaching in Ephesus. Now, the reason I've laid all this out is because I understand that we kind of jump around quite a bit. And so now I want us to focus in how we see in all of these characters, in all of these geographic locations, in all of these scene changes, we'll see that there is the process of faithfully making disciples of all people. So I want us to look at a few principles of what it means to make disciples of all people. And they'll be on the screen for you. The first one is this. Disciples need to be discipled. Disciples need to be discipled. What is a disciple? A disciple in a generic sense is a follower or a student, I should say. A, a disciple is one who learns something from someone. They are their student. But beyond sitting in a classroom, they follow them. It's as if they're an apprentice of the one that they are learning from. So in the context of Scripture, when it says that we are to be disciples, it means that we are to learn from Jesus and continue to learn from him so that we can obey him and follow him. Now, one is discipled. How are you discipled? You're discipled through instruction. You're discipled through teaching. 
You're discipled through training. You're discipled through encouragement. You're discipled in strengthening. I'm looking down here at my friend Coach Mo, and uh, he uh, is one of the coaches at CSHS. And uh, so if we win uh, all the way to state, it'll be because of him. If we don't, it'll be because of him as well. So uh, it's all on you. But in all seriousness, as I read that, um, Coach Mo and I have had lots of chances to talk about how he is striving to disciple young men that he interacts with. And what's interesting is he's in a profession that allows him to disciple students in the sport of football, but it also puts him in the lives of students to disciple them in the ways of Christ. So as I listed the ways that we disciple others, I'm thinking of how you do that literally on the football field. You do it through instruction, through teaching, through training, through encouragement, through strengthening. I know for me, the coaches that I had in high school that all they ever did was say a cuss word every other line, it was not encouraging to me whatsoever. But I know that the one coach that I had that never cussed that was an encourager made all the difference in my life. And so I'm not, high, I'm not elevating you to being a perfect guy, but well, the way I anticipate Coach Mo is that his intention is not only to train them in the sport, but to encourage them as they do that. Whenever we talk about discipling someone in the steps of the faith of Jesus, we need to give literal instruction, training, teaching, point them to Scripture, and encourage them while they do it, and give them practical tools and how they can do it. You see, a, a football coach, hopefully, and maybe that's the problem with my Dallas Cowboys, a football coach hopefully doesn't just go to the, to the, to the, the, the video room and show them what to do and say, well, run those plays. They get out there and demonstrate, and they get down in the right proper position to show the form and the technique. And so whenever you're discipling someone for Jesus, we don't just give them structured instruction. We do that, but we also give them coaching tips along the way. So a disciple needs to be discipled. And we see several examples in this text of disciples being discipled. Look back at verse 23. Paul says, it says that Paul went from town to town for the purpose of strengthening all the disciples. You see, Paul's heart was not to leave a new convert of Jesus Christ out wandering on their own and floundering through life, but rather his intention was to come alongside of them and to disciple them and encourage them and strengthen them. Disciples need strengthening. And then in verse 26, we see Priscilla and Aquila discipling. You talk about something scandalous. There's a woman discipling a man in scripture. <gasps> I halfway joke because some of us as Christians, I don't know about this room, but some of us as Christians pause and go, oh my goodness, can a woman really disciple other people? The answer is a resounding yes. Let me say it again. The answer is a resounding yes. Here is Priscilla alongside her husband, Aquila, and they are discipling Apollos because we see in verse 26, they are concerned about something he's teaching, and so they've explained to him the way of God more accurately. All of us that are followers of Jesus need to be discipled. All of us. Apollos needed to be discipled. We'll talk more about him in just a moment. The third way we see disciples being discipled in this text is Paul taught the disciples in Ephesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says that he took his disciples, or not his disciples, but the disciples of Jesus that were there, he took them to the hall of Tyrannus, and it says that he reasoned daily with them. And it continued for two years. Paul did not say, y'all come on Sunday and I'll preach and I'll see you again on Sunday. No, daily they did life together and he discipled these believers. Can you see the richness of the importance of discipling people, whether they first have come to faith, whether they have a confusing understanding of a, of a doctrinal truth, or whether they are just growing in their faith? We need to be discipled. And then along those same lines, you and I are discipling others. The question is, how are you doing it? I want you to ask yourself that question. If Alan says, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm discipling others, how are you doing? You're like, oh my goodness, I'm not doing very good. Or like, I've got it all together. Like, or somewhere in between. How are you doing it? Church, through time has given a perception of what it means to follow Jesus 
and the world says, I don't want any part of that. Now, I'm not saying that we should compromise the truth of Scripture. I'm just saying, are we accurately portraying an image of what it means to follow Jesus? All disciples need to be discipled. Are you discipling others? Are you leading others to follow Jesus? I want us to be careful, though. If I said all disciples need to be discipled, don't think that your job is to be the discipler. Your job is also to be the disciplee, right? And what I mean by that is it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility to make disciples, but you also have the responsibility to be a disciple. And to be a disciple means that you continue to, continue to be discipled yourself. So before you go, okay, let me see, how did Paul do it? I need to be like Paul. You need to also say, oh my goodness, how did Apollos receive his discipling? How did the followers of Jesus in Ephesus receive their discipling? All disciples need to be discipled. So my question is, how are you being discipled? Are you being discipled by the truths of God's word? Or are you being discipled by society's erroneous thinking? Are you being discipled by the truths of God's word or are you being discipled by your own arrogant way of thinking? Are you being discipled by the truth of God's word or are you being discipled by your own opinion or your own little echo chamber of people speaking into your life? We need to be discipled by the truth of God's word. How can we be discipled? And we'll go to the next point in just a second. We should be sitting under teaching and preaching. We can be discipled by being in a discipleship group. We can be discipled by being in a hope group, which we have here at our church family. We can be discipled by serving on a ministry team. We can be discipled by being in an equipping class. Here at our church, we have these classes that will begin in September on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock called equipping classes that are designed to give us a proper foundation. And I encourage you, to jump into one this year. We need to be discipled. The second principle about discipling all people is this. A disciple must be teachable. A, a disciple must be teachable. Look at verses 25 and 26. A lot of scholars have differing views and opinions on Apollos. The question is, was Apollos really a Christian or was he not? Because it says that Apollos did not understand all that there was to understand about Jesus, and he's corrected by uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And so the question is, is he a disciple already? It says he only knew the baptism of John. And when you flip over to chapter 19, verse 4, we find out that the baptism of John is about repentance and looking towards the coming Messiah. And so the question is, was he already a Christian or not? I personally believe that he was. And the reason I think Apollos was already a Christian is because in verse 25, it says that he was fervent in spirit. And in fact, in the Greek, the, the definite article the is there. So it actually says fervent in the spirit. So it could be that it's saying he's fervent in the Holy Spirit. It says that he taught accurately concerning Jesus. And then after he responds to his conversation with Apollos, I mean Aquila and Priscilla, there's no mention of baptism or the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's just he gets corrected and begins to preach again. Whatever took place, we see that Apollos is teachable because Apollos was an eloquent speaker. He knew things about Jesus. He was teaching with passion and fervor and enthusiasm. And then when Priscilla and Aquila see an issue with something he's teaching or what he doesn't understand, I love what they did. They didn't stand up in the middle of the meeting and shout him down, but rather they pulled him over to the side and they corrected him. And they taught him. They didn't seek to embarrass him, but they corrected something. And then Apollos received it. He didn't go, hey guys, I'm from Alexandria. Like, I went to the library all the time. I know my stuff. I know the Bible. I know the scripture. I, I, I'm an eloquent speaker. You don't have a right to speak into my life. No, he was teachable. And so my question is, as you're being discipled by others, are you teachable or not? Do, do you resist when people, people try to speak into your life? Do you argue? Do you avoid their correction? When the preacher preaches, do you go, I wish somebody else was here to hear this because this doesn't apply to me at all? Or are you ready to hear what God has to say to you through his word about correcting you in your life? 
You see, all of us, as disciples of Jesus, must continue to be discipled, and therefore we must continue to be teachable. How else is the Holy Spirit able to transform us and change our lives and speak into our lives unless we are teachable? I also like the fact that I said that Priscilla and Aquila were humble in their correction of Apollos. They handled it privately and lovingly. So my question in this section of the sermon is this, are you teachable? Are you teachable or do you think you know it all? If we're not careful, we'll go to a sermon and we think we already know it. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It was a fun service, but my life wasn't changed. If we're not careful, we can open up the Bible and go, how many times have I read the book of Job? I already know this. Like, okay, his friends are going to say this. He's going to say that. And then he's going to say this to God. And then God's going to respond. Like, we might know all that we're reading, but the question is, are we allowing the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives or are we refusing to be teachable? See, after a sermon, after reading scripture, after prayer time, we should leave changed. We should be constantly learning and applying what we learn. If you've been around very long, you've heard me talk about my D group. It's a discipleship group, and I've got a couple of guys in my life that I sit down and talk about Scripture with, and and through the years, we've challenged each other and all of that. As powerful as a D group is in my life, if I'm not teachable, it's worthless. Because I walk away going, okay, that's great. That's great. I already knew that. Or you're wrong. You don't have the right to speak into me. I need to hold myself accountable by allowing other men to speak into my life as well. I must be teachable. Let's go to another principle of making disciples of all peoples, and that is there are religious people who need the gospel. And I have religious in quotation marks here. What we see is that making disciples also involves sharing the gospel with those who have not yet believed. Some of the people that we need to share the gospel with are those who are actually the religious ones. Look with me in chapter 19. In chapter 19, Paul shows up. He's in Ephesus. He sees these guys that appear to be religious. It says that they are disciples, but as we read it, it appears that they're not disciples of Jesus, but rather they're simply disciples of John the Baptist. It says they don't even know the Holy Spirit exists. Apparently, they were disciples of Jesus, I'm sorry, of John, and they were still anticipating the Messiah, but they were not saved. No doubt they felt good about who they were and how they were with God. After all, that's how religious people are. We think we're good with God. But then Paul began to probe them with some religious questions. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Yes. Paul took a moment to share with them who John's baptism was pointing towards, and that was pointing towards Jesus. I don't know about you. Maybe you've been raised in a home that you were a Christian home. Maybe you were raised in a home where your grandpappy was a preacher. Maybe you went to Awana, kind of like what we heard a moment ago uh, from, uh, what's his face? Uh, What's his name? Uh, Pops, thank you. And you got all the awards at Awana. You said all the verses. You see, all of those things are fine and dandy, but they don't define a person as being in a relationship with Jesus. Rather, those things should come out of being a follower of Jesus. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to move beyond being religious and understanding who Jesus is and, and, and being in the right relationship with God? The Scripture is clear. Throughout Scripture, we find out that all of us as humans, while we were made in the image of God to reflect His glory to others, the reality is all of us have rebelled against God, chosen our own path, made ourselves in control of our lives, acting as if we are sovereign and in charge, like we don't need God to tell us what to do, and we live life however we want to, and we sin against God by doing things that are against His will and the clear commands of God. And because of that sin in our life, Scripture tells us that the result of our sin is death, not only physical death, but spiritual death, that for all eternity, because of our sin, we'll be eternally separated from a good, holy, perfect God. But the good news is that that's not the end of the story, because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because the reality is this, Jesus, son of God, God in flesh, 
flesh, fully God, fully man, came, walked this earth, lived a life that you and I could not live, lived a life of perfection, did not deserve death, did not deserve separation from God, did not deserve the wrath of God. He willingly took on the wrath of his Father by taking our sins to the cross and nailing them on the cross that our sins might be forgiven if we place our faith and our trust in him instead of ourselves. And three days after he was crucified on the cross and put into the tomb three days later he came out victorious he was victorious all along but he came out victorious over sin and death and the grave by being raised to life i'm not asking are you a good person i'm not asking are you doing the right thing i'm not asking do you go to church i'm not asking are you tithing to the church i'm not asking if you're coming to church on august 27th like the pastor keeps telling you to come i'm saying do you believe that jesus is the way to salvation have you placed your faith and trust in Him and Him alone? And if you repented, acknowledged your sin, and turned from your sins, not in your own power and your own strength, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and trust in Jesus for salvation. You see, some of us in this room, some of us watching online, we are religious, but we don't know the gospel. Don't leave this place without knowing the gospel truth of the matter is this we can preach the gospel until we're blue in the face but this principle is true as well and it'll be on the screen and that is some will never believe in jesus no matter what we say there'll be those who don't respond to the gospel Paul experienced that time and time again, and in this text, specifically in verse 9, where it says that there were stubborn, unbelieving Jews that end up running him out of the, 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 the synagogue, if you will, and then he moves his shop to another place to share the gospel there. And my question for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're seeking to make other followers of Jesus, if you're seeking to make disciples, and someone rejects the gospel, what do you do when people don't end up believing in Jesus? I would encourage you, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. And yet, the answer out of that is going to be on the screen as well. But, regardless of the fact that some will never believe in Jesus, we keep on disciples. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How phenomenal is that? Like the word all, consistently through Scripture, does not always mean 100%, but it means a large number, a large representation, a representation across people of all kinds. The reality is this, because of the faithful disciple-making venture that Paul found himself on for those two-plus years in Ephesus, at the end of that, all peoples, whether they be Jew or Greek, had heard the name of Jesus and had heard the gospel proclaimed. So does that mean all of Asia showed up at the Hall of Tyrannus so he could preach? I don't think so. I I think what happened is Paul discipled others who went out and discipled others. Paul discipled others who went out and discipled others who discipled others. And there was this continuing process. And because of Paul's faithfulness to make some disciples, they made disciples as well. And we have this multiplication process happen so that all of Asia had heard the name of Jesus. I, I've been here five years. And by the way, I meant to say at the front end, thank you so much last week for celebrating that with me. I had lots of good sugar. I've been told I look like a little kid when I hear the word sugar and I love to eat sugar. But anyway, I've been here five years. That's two and a half years longer than Paul was in Ephesus. I don't know what the population of Asia was, but I anticipate Asia's population was at least as large, if not larger, than the population in College Station and Bryan. And I know they were spread out a little bit further, and I know they didn't have cars to get there. I can guarantee you that because of my ministry here at Living Hope, that same statement cannot be made. So that Alan continued to teach for five years so that all the residents of Bryan and College Station heard the word of the Lord, both cowboy fans and non-cowboy fans. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. How amazing would it be 
If we as a church family took seriously this call to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God, how incredible would it be, not for our sake, but for the glory of God, would it be that if in two years' time it could truthfully, honestly be said that everyone in Bryan College Station had heard the name of Jesus because of the discipling that takes place here? Now, don't get me wrong, it's not us, it's other faithful churches in our city as well. So we're not on an island doing it ourselves, that's not what I'm saying. So let's expand it. How incredible would it be if it said, because of the Bible-believing followers of Jesus in the city of Bryan and College Station, in two years' time, everyone in the region had heard the name of Jesus. In order for us to see that happen, though, we have to trust the Holy Spirit. As you make disciples, trust the Holy Spirit to his work. Be a disciple, make disciples. Are you doing that? What's your next step? I'm glad you asked me that. Here's your next step. Some of you in this room, you need to become a disciple of Jesus. You're religious, but you don't know Jesus personally. You need to come to faith in Jesus Christ today. Others of you need to take the step the next step of discipleship, you are a follower of Jesus. And what's your next step? For some of you, you've never been baptized and you need to be baptized. We're having a baptism in two weeks on August the 13th here in this building during our worship service. Some of you need to sign up for baptism. Others of you, you are a follower of Jesus and you've been checking out this church for a while. You've not made the commitment to be a member of this church and God's telling you that your next step of discipleship is to sit under the leadership of this church family and be a part of this church body and join this church and become a member of this church. Others of you, you're coming faithfully and you're able physically to serve, but you're not serving anywhere within our church family and your next step should be serving somewhere. Others of you, you've been coming a while, you've never been in a hope group. Hope groups are starting in about a month. You need to sign up being one. Some of you need to take the next step of jumping in a D group. Others of you need to sign up in an equipping class. All of these are possible next steps and some of you as a disciple, your next step is to address a sin in your life. Seek reconciliation. Be a good steward of what God's given you, and the list goes on. Another possible next step is to take a more active role in discipling others. If our job is to faithfully disciple others, you need to evangelize. You need to disciple. And then I want to ask you this. Could it be that some of us in this room, you are being called to disciple not only on a regular, everyday basis, but God specifically is calling you into ministry. So Kaylee came to faith in college, right? Kaylee came to faith in college, plugged into our church here, got baptized at our church in the Dallas area, and within a four-year time span, and maybe less, God raised Kaylee up to go out and vocationally do the work that she's doing. You're like, but I'm not fresh out of college and I'm not moving to Portland. I bet you when she came to faith, she didn't, oh, I know what's going to happen next. I'm going to go to Portland. No, she probably was pursuing her major and thought she was going to work in, I don't know, what did you major in? Communications. Okay, so she is doing a form of communications, but that's probably not the communication she thought she was going to do, right? So some of you may need to say yes to Jesus and become a missionary. Some of you need to say yes to Jesus and pursue what it looks like to be a pastor. Others of you need to say yes to Jesus and see what it might look like to be a youth pastor or a children's pastor. See, all too often we kind of think that, oh, it's the spiritual giants that go out and they're the missionaries and they're the pastors and they're the leaders. Don't get me wrong, there are high standards and those leaders should attain those standards or they have no reason or business serving as a pastor or a minister. But it does not take some sort of super amazing person. It just takes a person who says yes to the Holy Spirit in their life and God saying, this is what I have for you. So all of us are called to make disciples. And some of us may even be called to go and do that vocationally. And I don't care how old you are, how young you are. I don't care whether you're retired or not retired. It could be that God's calling you to that. Would you be willing to say yes? I'm going to lead us in prayer. 
Went a little bit longer. I guess I felt like pops. I preached longer than I intended. You're like, Alan, it seems like the normal time, perhaps, but I think it was longer than normal. But the reality is this. We've been called to make disciples. Are we going to get serious about it? We've been called to be a disciple. Are we going to get serious about it? Are we going to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in our life as we do those things? This morning, you'll have a chance to begin the process of saying yes. And the reason I say begin the process is because it's not about what you do in this room. It's about how we go out and live it, right? Don't leave here unchanged. Say yes to the work that the Holy Spirit's doing in your life, whatever that yes is. Even if you don't know what it is, you just say, yes, Lord, yes. And that's all you know to say today. This altar is available and is open for you to come and pray. I'm available to come and pray. If you would rather pray with someone else, grab that person sitting by you or somebody else in the room and come pray at the altar. There's ways you can respond on your connection card. Lots of different ways to respond. Let us say yes to him today. There'll be two songs that we sing during the first one. Lots of opportunities to do that. The second one, offering plates will be passed. You can drop your connection card, your giving envelope there, and you can continue to respond in the second song as well. Let me leave us in prayer. Father, we see an example in the life of Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, and Apollos. All of these individuals went out to share the gospel with others that are around them. And Father, you're calling us to do the same thing too. Father, I pray that we as a church would stop just saying, be a disciple, make disciples, be a disciple, make disciples. But Father, we would live that out, that we would understand what it means to be a disciple, that we would understand what it means to make disciples, that we'd be willing to acknowledge that sometimes it's messy, sometimes it's confusing, sometimes we don't know exactly what to do. But Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives, that we would say yes to him, and that he would move us as he chooses. And Father, this morning, may you even right now in this place begin to call out men and women to say yes to you, to do ministry vocationally. May you be calling out someone right here, right now, that you may be sending to a mission field somewhere where people don't know Jesus. That right now you may be calling out people to serve in ministry in a local church. God, I don't know what you're up to, but I believe that you are up to making disciples of all peoples, of all languages, of all tribes and locations, and that you're using us to do that very thing. Father, in the middle of it all, may we not be so quick to say yes to be a discipler and forget that we are to be a disciple e as well. Because we have nothing to give unless we're being discipled ourselves. So, Father, have your way in us this morning. Holy Spirit, move among us. Jesus, thank you for the price that you paid on the cross for our sins. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? And let's respond as the Lord leads us. Places I will call, incline your ear to me anew, and hear my God for mercy, Lord.
your hope in God alone. Take courage in His power to save completely and forever one. By Christ emerging from your grave, I will
Because of that truth, God, I pray that in this moment that we would stop trying to continue to pay it. Father, may we not work for our salvation because that's impossible. May we rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. And in our resting in that, we know that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. But rather we rest in that truth. And because of that truth, because of what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives, then you have propelled us out to go live a life of obedience and to make disciples of those around us. But God, we thank you that it's not because of our work, because that it's because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's his shed blood that's made our sins as white as snow. Father, may you send us out in your grace and your goodness to tell others the hope that's found in you. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.